Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline, host of the show and founder of the business community Baytalk. I'm really looking forward to speaking with today's guest, Victoria Jacona Gilmovich. Since the age of six, Victoria has been putting her bow to the violin strings. She's gathered a list of credentials and achievements in her time so long that it would take up the length of this podcast to name them all. I would recommend the listeners visit Victoria's profile on her website to see the list. It is incredible to say the least. Her love of music, education and teaching has led her to create the Inner West Institute of Music in Five Dock, a music school that aims to tailor lessons to students' needs and encourage a love of music for a student's lifetime. In today's podcast, though, we delve into the person behind the music. Tragedy has played a significant part in Victoria's life and the life of her family. I recall speaking to her mum, Nellie, about this, and the pain is clearly still very raw. We look at how music carried and still carries Victoria through this. We also look at the role music played in her upbringing and now in the upbringing of her children. And for all of us with children, we discuss the benefit of encouraging your child to learn a musical instrument or any skill that does not give instant gratification. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for coming on. Hi, <laughs> thanks for having me. So when did it all start? Can you remember when music was first introduced into your life and how much of an impact did it have on your upbringing? Yeah, um, I was born um, in Australia and my mother was and still is a piano teacher. So um, I guess the minute I was born, I was sort of in this environment where music was going straight up all the time and mum had students walking in and out of the house to the point that the only kids I actually knew, the only people I knew were people coming for piano lessons. So I thought that um, everyone played piano. And then I went to school and I had a sort of a rude shock that I was the only kid that actually could play the piano. So I guess from day dot, I was introduced to music. And as soon as I went to school, um, I realised that it was like an, a unique thing and it, I was good at it. So I just, I ran with it and had this kind of tunnel vision um, and did only music. That was mm. just all I wanted to do. Possibly because I was lady, lazy and I knew that, that I was good at that. So, you know, why try and master something else? But um, possibly also if you believe in having a calling, you know, I, I found it pretty early. So now with you, with your own children, like how do you incorporate it now into their upbringing? Um, so both my kids um, learn musical instruments. They learn two instruments each. Estelle learns... Um, violin and piano and Hugo learns double bass and piano and um, we again from birth we've introduced music into their lives um, first with um, music just playing all the time and then hearing my students and um, as soon as I could I took them to baby music classes and um, it wasn't sort of long before they were about four, four and a half and we started doing proper music lessons. Um, I, I went with it because that's what I know and they went with it because that's what they saw and it just, it, it almost is um, second nature in our mm. family um, and it's kind of a very sort of primal monkey see, monkey do thing. You know, I was brought up in a musical family and I copied that and it sort of carried on to my kids. 
in neither generation was music sort of imposed, but it's just mm. it just seems natural. So the love is almost like something like the love for music sounds almost genetic that it's just there because yeah. it's just big part of your family. It could be genetic, or it could be just um, a very loose form of sort of um, indoctrination. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably the wrong word, but um, it's just like I said. You know, when you see something from the day you're born, you think that that's the norm, mm. um, and so you just you keep doing that. Um, so the world that we, as you know, we live in now is really instantaneous, and kids have a lot of um, gadgets where they can get a quick hit of dopamine's or whatever it is that, that they get from it, and so. What role do you think learning an instrument gives a child and do you think it, it helps them to understand delayed gratification as opposed to everything being so instant? Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's so many skills that come from music other than you know learning to read and the skill of playing. There's a lot of patience involved, a lot of repetition, a lot of... Um, sort of time awareness, organisation, like there's just hundreds of benefits. And in terms of gratification, it, it's a tricky one because you can't measure it. I was actually just saying um, to my personal trainer the other day that I'm training for a marathon right now. And each week, as I add a kilometre and try to reduce the speed, you know, I take a photograph of the treadmill and I can see, you know, more kilometres more time and you know it's so easy to track and with music you can see progress in the long term but it's actually hard to track like you can't quantify it with speed or kilometers there's kind of this you know you learn a piece of music and then you fumble around and then the next level is you get comfortable with the notes and then the next level is you allow yourself to look away from the music and focus on the actual technicality of playing. Next level might be you know it so well that you can play it without looking at the music at all and you have it memorised. You know, the top level is that, you know, you can not just play it but you perform it. So that's mm. kind of like, you know, that's how you would possibly measure um, progress um, over the course of time with music. but. You know, if you, if you learn a piece of music, you're not going to perform every single piece of music. So even when you're progressing, um, it's hard to quantify. And, it, and it's just something that, you know, it shows kids and adults who learn that, you know, you can persevere with something and you might not be able to see instant results. But if you step back and look over the course of the year, you can say, well, I've learnt 20 pieces of music or I can now play and read at the same time, or I don't feel like this sort of instrument is completely foreign. And that's how you measure your progress, and that's how you measure sort of, you can sort of step back and get that high of seeing the progress, but when you're inside it. Um, so you need to make sure that you step back and reflect on what you've achieved so that you can get, you can see how your, your, your progress has increased because when you're in it, you can't see it. You, when you're in it, you can't see it. And even as a professional, um, you know, you can't see it. And there's this thing where they say that to become an expert at something, you need to do 10,000 hours, I think it is. Um, 
And if you think of becoming a master of each individual piece of music, if you have to play a piece of music 10,000 times each and then multiplied by 20 pieces of music, it's just, it's bottomless. And mm. even now, I've been playing for 30 years. Um, I still need to step back sometimes and when I'm frustrated that I feel like I haven't made progress, I need to step back and actually think, well, actually you have. Like, actually, three days ago you couldn't play that and now you can or you're, you're better than you were. And I need to keep doing that and I need to keep reminding my students that, um, you know, it feels like you don't make progress and it's really hard. But, you know, you can see it over a longer period of time. And I guess that that's really important in today's age because there needs to be some things in life that are challenging that don't give you that instant sort of ping of, you know, reward. Mm. Um, and we're so used to that, that it's good to have a hobby or a skill that doesn't give you that instant reward because life isn't, always going to give you those instant rewards. So if you can teach a child to accept that things need repetition and things won't always feel like they're progressing, um, I think you're giving them a head start on life in general. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it, it seems like a mundane thing. And I, I think I, it's the reason why a lot of um, students probably throw the towel in earlier because they just can't see or feel that rush. But um, I think it's a skill in itself to keep persisting with something and not get that rush. So, yeah, um, and to still enjoy it without the rush. Yeah, I think that, that is mm. a, a skill that needs to be learnt in itself. Well, I mean, even with, with my girls, with the ballet, like mm. getting on point. I mean, every little girl when they see a ballerina, they want to be on point. But, I mean, it's took Natalie, well, she's now, what, 14, so from the age of six. It's only now that she can do a triple pirouette on point. It, does, mm. it takes that long. Yeah. But if you, if you don't encourage them, then um, they can stop before that sort of, you know, what was that, seven years? Mm. Um, and they'll never get there, and they'll think that they just didn't achieve fast enough, but it's hard to explain to a child, or even to an adult, actually, with adult students, it's just as hard um, to explain that, you know, things take a long time, especially skills like that, fine motor skills, or just, it's a really sophisticated sort of processing skill music. Um, it's basically a sophisticated code, five lines and dots of different shapes and sizes. Um, it's almost like learning like if I asked you right now to, to learn Morse code from scratch, <laughs> it would take you months and mm. likewise for reading music. Mm. Um, so it's, it's literally like learning another code or another language and then having to learn that and put it onto an instrument that has its own technical difficulties. Yeah. Um, there's just hurdle after hurdle. It's, it's tricky. Mm, there's a lot in it. So you've had amazing, uh, an amazing career playing with many orchestras around the world and here in Sydney. What would be your highlight? I just can't. I, I thought about it this morning and I just can't pinpoint a What was highlight. that band you played with? What was that band you played with last year? 
Oh, it's over the last year. <laughs> it was um, when it was. Uh, last year alone, I played with Basement Jack. Yeah, that's right. That one. Yeah. Air Supply. <laughs> Could have been going for Air Supply. And the other one was Joy Division. So hey, some of your <laughs> listeners might know one of those three. I have to admit, uh, last year, this is just showing how daggy I am. I didn't know any of the three of them. <laughs> now I'm a big fan of all. But, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint a favourite performance because they're all so different and performances are very in the moment. So um, you can play the same performance like we did um, when, I, when I played in the Metropolitan Orchestra with Air Supply. We did the same performance, you know, like 10 times, but each of them felt so different. Even though the music was the same, the people on stage were the same, you know, it's, they're all so, so different. Um, but yeah, a favourite performance... You know, I, I keep going back to my student performances um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as sort of more memorable experiences. I mean, the first thing that came to mind actually was um, when I was about 15, I, I played in this combined orchestra in Spain. I couldn't tell you right now what we played, um, but I know that it was it was kind of like a two two-day sort of experiment and there were um, musicians from Egypt and musicians from Spain and from China and from Australia and we all came together and we didn't speak each other's language. We quickly sort of hashed together a few pieces of music, did a performance and I remember being concertmaster of that orchestra and sort of the euphoria of that but I can't remember anything else about that performance but okay. that was the first actually the first thing that came to mind so you remember how you felt yeah and I, I think musicians kind of go into this kind of I, I, I can't compare it to you know some sort of um, drug usage because I've never done that but it's just such a high each performance that you know I, I think it would compare to something like that it's just and it's so encompassing that you actually don't really remember much of the performance. You just remember the high and getting to that and then sort of going through that sort of emotional roller coaster. But what happens in between is kind of, it's just, you know, what you've been practicing for the whole time. And you, you've got to put that aside and just enjoy the performance. So you don't yeah. think about what you were, well, I don't, maybe other people do, what you were doing during the performance. You just, remember the enjoyment that you mm -hmm. had or maybe the fear so it's it's different but yeah I can't I can't boil any one particular performance as uh -huh. the most memorable now um Henry can you tell us a bit about your brother mm -hmm. and I know that you and him are very close and how has m music helped you to cope with such a loss in your life yeah so my brother Henry um, was also an incredible musician and he passed away um, very suddenly at the age of 15 at a music camp actually um, and he just didn't wake up so it was just brought down to sudden, sudden adult death um, which um, I found out late, later with research is common mostly in males between sort of 18 to 25 it's kind of like a an adult male version of cot death. They just mm. it's just like 
It's actually called SADS, which is like SIDS, but with adult instead of infants. Um, but yeah, we were very close and we were both very musical. And um, we, as children, we fed off each other's sort of musical energy. And I guess we were a little bit competitive, but also very supportive of each other. And we performed together wherever we could. There was a, you know, um, four and a half year age difference. So we weren't always in the same um, camps or opportunities just because our ages weren't similar. Um, but yeah, when he passed away, um, it was a, I was 21 and it was a, of course, a, a terrible shock. Um, and I just, I didn't know how to deal with it. And for the first, I think two weeks, I pretty much stayed in my room. Uh, just, I don't even remember. I just stayed in my room. I didn't do anything. And I think I was just avoiding the you know steady stream of people visiting our house and sort of had these um sort of mental promises that i would never play again uh sort of went in and out of you know i this is it you know i've got to you know break away from what i'm doing and start life fresh and then my violin teacher um who um she rang me and she was a very lovely but strange character. And um, I don't know if this is a, a thing in the past, but um, teachers have a way of sort of dangling a carrot in front of you as some sort of a incentive or as a bribe. And at that moment, she knew exactly how to yank me out of my room. She sort of said, well, you know, I know you want to play this particular piece of music. I need you on my doorstep tomorrow. And I just felt unable to say no. And if it hadn't been for that phone call um, and that piece of music, I probably would have just, I don't know, I would have stayed in my room. But I felt like I couldn't let her down. And I felt that that was kind of like my, my lifeline. Yeah. So um, I went for the lesson, picked up this piece of music, which she originally laughed in my face when I said I wanted to play it. It's Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. And um, she, she said, no way, this, you're not ready for this. Um, but she, she suddenly changed her mind. She obviously knew that I was, it would be a turning point for me. So I locked myself in my room and practiced nonstop and came back a week later and had learnt the whole piece of music, which is about... 45 minutes long. What? But yeah, I practiced oh eight to 10 hours a day, came back and within two weeks, she said, okay, in two weeks, I need you to perform, you know, the first movement. So again, I sort of just completely just threw myself into this project and it took my mind off everything else. And it was a time of great um, turmoil, but also a lot of growth. I mean, I was doing well, but I guess that challenge sort of propelled me forward much faster um, as a violinist because all I did was sleep, eat and practice for 10 hours, 10 hours a day. Um, I, it was a great excuse not to talk to anyone, it was a great excuse not to go out um, and the only time I ever left home was to go to the lesson. So. Really, I feel like at that point, 
that that's probably nowadays would be sort of um, you would have people banging on your door trying to do an intervention. I was going to say, but when, <laughs> when do you talk about what you're going through? Yeah, uh, I guess, you know, but then in those days with no social media, no, just mobile phones were just coming around. Um, I didn't get that sort of distraction of people trying to contact me. So, yeah, I just flung myself into my music and... Uh, I think ultimately it's what saved me, but in the time it was what would have come out as some sort of depressive sort of period, yeah. but yeah. it made that tunnel that I could come out of. So it was kind of like it created this tunnel that, you know, led me from that extreme grief to um, getting out of it. And if I didn't make that tunnel for myself, um, I don't know how I would have coped with it otherwise. And then after that, things got really busy because, I mean, I practised so much that I started having sort of casual work with different orchestras and doing competitions that life got so busy because I suddenly improved so much that I didn't have time to sit in my room and wallow in my grief. So I really do think it saved me. It was just a different way of grieving and um, it was, it's an unusual way of grieving. I don't think many people would grieve in the same way or have the opportunity to grieve in the same way. Same way. And for me, it was just easier to play violin than talk. So it was just, mm -hmm. it was, um, it was just the best thing for me at that time. Yeah. Even though maybe now, if I would view myself as my own daughter, does that make sense? Yeah. I, yeah. Um, I probably would have barged in as a parent and sort of tried to fix the situation, but I'm lucky that um, my parents didn't try to fix it. They just left it for what it was because they were grieving in their own way. I was going to say that they're going through yeah. it too. So um, I think, you know, I was lucky that I had that way to grieve and that was the same thing that would yank me out later. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I consider myself lucky to have had that. So you consider that you actually put yourself through therapy in a way, through yeah. your music? Yeah, I think, I think when you practice sort of very deeply, you almost do go into some sort of meditative mm. state. And I think I'm a very... Um, I like to, you know, when I'm emotional, I like to be alone. So that was just, it just made it easier to be alone and not be bugged and probed. And it just, it just suited my, my style. Mm. And Henry was probably listening and critiquing you as well. <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. Um, I felt that he was always there. And I always, um, even to this day, I always sort of think about him as I'm walking on stage, as I do with several other people that have passed. And um, last year I it was no, 15 right years, yeah. um, last year was 15 years of his passing and um, I had to do a, a concerto with, a, with the Metropolitan Orchestra and I specially commissioned my encore. Usually you do an encore at the end of a concerto and it would be easy just to pluck any of a number of amazing 
um, pieces out, but I commissioned an encore specially um, in tribute to him. So I felt that by commissioning a piece of music, um, I've got this piece of music now that I, I guess I own, um, that was written for for the 15 years and anniversary and it just made that more meaningful yes, so ask, I do feel? think about him at you know all the time um on stage but like I said there's several people that have passed that have influenced me in my life that I think of as I'm walking on stage so it seems to be um I use my music to cope with the grieving but I also use the grieving to fuel the performances yeah so and they're amazing and it's just kind of cyclical so mm. that's I, I feel like I can't walk on stage and not think about those those people wow mm. well thank you it's been I was looking forward to hearing all about Henry and just how the music helped you through so thank yeah you. and I think everyone will enjoy hearing that so thank you thank you